So I want to take a minute and come to uh, answer some questions that have come in. Uh, again, we do get questions on our YouTube channel in the comments section. We also get emails uh, to uh, our info at uh, calvarychapelfranklin.com. Uh, this actually comes from one reason in our comments section uh, on YouTube. And there's a couple of questions here which are really good. Uh, one is, have you ever done a video on what needs to happen before Antichrist comes? Just wondering. Uh, the second question is uh, in regard to the mark of the beast. How are we sure that it would be a physical or visible mark? Revelation 13 has lots of symbolism. How do we know the mark is not symbolic of something else, worshiping the monetary system and such? Um, I've read from others that the right hand or forehand, uh, forehead is symbolic of our thoughts and actions. And then I get so confused, but God is not an author of confusion. You are absolutely right about that. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion, but rather instead... When we come to the book of Revelation, and of course, uh, the book of Revelation is exactly that, a book of revealing things. And the intention is that we would understand it. The encouragement to understand, and this is found throughout the book, uh, and and um, and so we should approach it with that sense that, that it can be understood. It's not intended to be more hidden. So let me go ahead and try and uh, tackle the first question uh, in regard to what needs to happen before Antichrist comes. Well, um, it would seem scripturally that there are a number of things that sort of pave the way for his arrival. Um, at the very least, if we read like Daniel chapter 7, where it describes, and, and, and Revelation 13 at the very outset, which, uh, of course, there is symbolism in both of these places in regard to describing world leaders and kings and kingdoms that ultimately come together. And, and uh, in Revelation, we see how they hand over their power and authority, these kings, uh, to the uh, you know to the the Antichrist in Daniel chapter seven we see some very similar things here these ten horns or ten kings and ultimately their power comes under the auspices um, of uh, of this one horn that arises in that so uh, it would appear from that that at the very least what needs to happen is that there needs to be some group of kingdoms that um, and there seems to be the possibility that we don't know who these kingdoms are. They they do seem to be part of what is a revived Roman Empire, if we consider Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in uh, Daniel chapter 2, of course, in concert then with the revelation that he has given, the vision he has given in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it would seem that this final empire that is governing the, the world at the time uh, when uh, when Christ returns is one that is uh, based upon the idea of a revived Roman Empire. That revived Roman Empire, according to or this group of nations at least, uh, as uh, as described in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, seem to give over their power and authority to this one that rises up from the midst of them, the one that is uh, a leader that we come to understand is known as the beast, or elsewhere he's variously referred to as Antichrist. So if this is, uh, well, when this happens, it would presumably happen because some arising of various nations has occurred has taken place to where when Antichrist comes on the scene, they are ready to now hand over their authority to him. Whether it's through his deceptions or whether, you know, whatever means that ultimately happens, uh, deception is obviously part of it, but whatever machinations happen here, machinations, how do you pronounce that word, um, happen en route to that, at some point they hand over their power. So they have to have risen to power, to have power to hand over uh, to Antichrist. So, uh, for example, when we study current events, uh, we always are careful not to be terribly dogmatic about what nations might be what and all this kind of thing. 
because at the end of the day, we won't really know for sure till it happens. And so, um, but that being said, to pay attention to what's going on out there for, and in particular, you know, we talk a lot about like the world economic forum and their influence, uh, this institution's influence and Klaus Schwab in particular's influence over many, um, especially younger leaders that are rising to prominence. Um, you know, people like Trudeau in Canada and such, um, who are having influence over large populations, segments of, you know, territory around the world and that kind of thing heavily influenced by the thinking and the philosophies and, and of, of creating a global order that uh, provides equity and all the different things that they purport to want to do. Well, we study those things because they help us get a sense of, uh, A, of how these things could come to be. We're living in a time when, you know, it's not hard at all to see how uh, it wouldn't take much more than a nudge to move us into a place where Antichrist could rise to power and receive power from these kings and kingdoms and such. But as far as who these kingdoms are, we can't say dogmatically who they are, but we can watch what's going on and unfolding around us in the world. And so as we pay attention to these things and as we begin to try to piece together the pieces of the puzzle, it becomes more clear. We get a better sense of, of again, at least how it can happen. And in the days to come, no doubt, we'll even begin to see more and more who is involved in all that. So I think in regard to what needs to happen before Antichrist comes, those kinds of things, at the very least, need to be in motion. Uh, I would say before Antichrist is revealed, that's a much clearer question to answer, because we can look uh, very clearly at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where we see that Antichrist, uh, or this one, uh, signs a peace covenant, uh, a treaty with Israel, um, there seems to be a connection uh, with the idea of them rebuilding their temple because we know there will be a third temple built during the time that Antichrist is on the scene. And we know that because in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we find out that he goes into the temple of God and declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped above all that is called God. This leads us now back into Revelation 13, where we see the beast who has received a mortal wound of some kind has come back to it, uh, come back to life, I should say, from it. Uh, apparently, a resurrection of sorts, and and the world is just so completely taken by this guy, and he's got a partner named the false prophet or the second beast in that. Now, this leads to trying to answer the second question when it comes to the idea of the mark of the beast: is it uh, just a uh, is it symbolic? Is it actually not really supposed to be taken as a physical mark? Uh, but is it more uh, seen as allegorical or symbolic in some way? Well, to answer that question, uh, I would say that the plain reading of the text seems to imply that this is a visible mark that actually uh, symbolizes a 666, or again, as we've pointed out, there are some manuscripts that say 616, but the number of the beast, the number of his name, um, the mark symbolizes either his name or a number that symbolizes his name. Um, and it there, there is this element of having to bow down and worship an image that is brought to life and that kind of thing. I tend to read those things in a very straightforward fashion. And I think that there's the reason for that is because there's not really a good reason not to. Yes, there is symbolism used in there, but the symbolism uh, is pretty well explained. Uh, for example, Revelation 13, where it talks about the beast, um, and these, uh, um, you know, well, as it says here in Revelation 13, this beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on its heads a blasphemous name. What well, goes on to speak about um, ultimately how these, and, and then it goes on to talk about the various beasts that are described as describing this particular beast. Uh, this imagery and symbolism that we see in Revelation 13 is also seen again in Daniel chapter 7, and it's explained what it means. Daniel even says, 
well, what do these things mean? And so he's given an explanation. So yes, there's symbolism, but the symbolism isn't nebulous or unclear. It actually is given explanation. And so um, even when we see symbolism, uh, the idea that that we should just assume that because there is symbolism, that means that other things necessarily have to be symbolic, I don't think follows logically. Uh, it can. I'm, I'm open to the possibility that it could be but it doesn't necessarily follow. For example, when later in Revelation 13, it speaks about uh, the beast and the false, well, the first and second beast, the Antichrist and false prophet. It talks about a monetary system that is uh, able to be participated in through a specific means, a vehicle by which you can enter into this, namely the mark. When it talks about an image being built, that the people of the world are called together to build an image and, and this false prophet supernaturally gives life to the image, where uh, where people are in awe of it and, and this kind of thing. You could take that to be something that is symbolic of, you know, again, maybe the thoughts and actions of people at that time and that. But you'd have to admit, I think, that if just because you say, the, not you personally, but just because it is said that the mark is on the forehead uh, and right hand would mean that it speaks of the thoughts and actions of people that is a subjective interpretation by definition. It doesn't say that's what it is. So we're sort of reading into the text what it could be. It Now, it could turn out to be that. But the text itself doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't give any reason to say that, it, to, to think that it means that for sure. And so what we're doing when I say subjective is we're sort of bringing what we think the text likely would mean or can mean or might mean. Now, of course, we all engage in this when we read passages that are unclear. We look at it, we consider what it could be, we look at the context throughout Scripture best we can to try and build the whole, the whole picture. But at the end of the day, some things we have to sort of take a step beyond, uh, have to, but we do take a step off and beyond what the text specifically says to basically, because it seems like it's pointing in this way. So I, I don't discount that. But I think wherever possible, the better thing is to simply read the passage for what it says. And if there is a very, very clear reason not to take it at face value, then I think we we step into, you know, um, maybe it's symbolic or something. But I think Revelation 13, 11 through 18, where it talks about um, the first and second beast, it talks about this system, it talks about worship. These things to me lend themselves well to be taken at face value. Not not the least of which in part is what we mentioned just a moment ago in 2 Thessalonians 2, where where the Antichrist goes into the temple of God, declares himself to be God. Well, that's that's what's happening in Revelation 13. And so in Revelation 13, we see a, an even further expression of something that Paul was already uh, uh, given, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, spiritually inspired with truth about in, back in 2 Thessalonians. And so and of course, you know, we take back to, to Daniel's writings as well, and we get a very full picture of what these days look like. So I, I don't, um, you know, while I, I certainly can concede that it could speak of something just symbolically, I don't really think it does. I, I, I do land very firmly on the side of this actually speaking specifically of events that unfold around two people that ultimately garner the worship of the world around that first person, the first beast, uh, and that finds expression through the building of an image, the taking of a mark, all of these things. And, and remember, part of the reason for all of this happening is because by the time you get to Revelation 19, you have got a global community that is in unity behind the uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet 
who again should be taken literally. Uh, If we understand Revelation 19, Jesus comes in and throws these two into the bottomless pit. Uh, They are in, in, in fire and torment from that moment on, even before the great white throne judgment and everything. So, um, again, there, it lends itself better, I think, to a straightforward reading and understanding it in those terms and in, in much more literal terms. So now, again, this is not something we have to fight about or anything, but, um, but you know, everyone who studies these passages has a right to land on the view that they, they think the scripture is teaching. And so I just, I just, for my part, I, I think it just speaks much more straightforwardly. So that being said, um, I want to go ahead and try and answer those two questions, which I thought were really, really good ones. And in doing so, I'll encourage you, if you have any thoughts or questions you want to share, feel free to leave them in our comments section. Or if you want to send an email, you can send it to info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And you can also, by the way, uh, email us through our church's website, same email address, the church is at calvarychapelfranklin.com. You can also watch these videos on there as well. Or you can go to my personal website at parsonspad.com and you can connect with me through that as well. So, but uh, thank you for watching and thanks for asking these questions. Thanks for sharing these, uh, these, uh, these questions that we might share them all together and try and answer them as we go through the word. So praise the Lord. But Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us your word. We thank you that in your word, you have even let us know that there are events coming down the road, uh, even yet future to us, that are ultimately going to culminate in the coming, not just of Antichrist, but ultimately of Christ himself, Jesus Christ. And as he returns to establish his kingdom here on the earth, we thank you, Lord, and look forward with great anticipation toward this happening. And uh, in the days that go between now and then, help us to be walking with our hands on the plow, but our eyes certainly looking up, realizing that the day is coming when Jesus will come for his bride and then, of course, we'll come and establish his kingdom as well. So we love you, Lord, and thank you. We pray that we would, as believers uh, of all kinds of different stripes with different perspectives on things like eschatology and that, uh, would enjoy the debate, the discussion. Help us, Lord, to be able to uh, uh, agree and disagree agreeably. Uh, help us to be able to share these ideas. And remember that at the end of the day, when they all come to, to pass, we'll, we'll be standing in your presence together as brothers and sisters, not arguing, but worshiping. So we praise you, Lord, and thank you for your goodness and grace toward us. We thank you for the future and hope that you have laid before us. We thank you that by Christ's own shed blood that we have now been invited in. And even as Peter says, we will one day inherit that wonderful inheritance uh, that, um, that ultimately is kept in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, bless you, and thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>